Well, good morning. The joy it is to be here with you today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab that. We're going to use it. Go to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 8 through 20 today. If you are here last week, we walked through this idea of Paul explaining what the highest privilege of the good news of the gospel is. And it's that those who, by God's grace, profess faith in Jesus Christ, those people are adopted into God's family. God picks those people who put their faith in Jesus to become children of God. And with that adoption, they receive the inheritance that comes from being part of God's family. And that news came at the end of this brilliant defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It started in chapter 3. But now here in the middle part of chapter 4, Paul's going to pause and he's going to appeal to the Galatians. Hey, please, now that you're justified, now that you've changed name tags, you've gone from being slaves to being sons, he says, please don't be sons who would act like slaves. Don't turn back to bondage or slavery of any kind. And so he makes these three separate appeals in the text. In verses 8 to 11, he warns them about being enslaved to anything. Then in verses 12 to 16, he encourages the Galatian believers to remember the relationship that he had with them. And then in verse 17 to 19, he appeals to them to remember his attitude towards them, specifically in comparison to the attitude that these false teachers had, and to think about what motivates attitude. Then he concludes in verse 20 by admitting that these Galatians, they perplex him. I love that word, perplex. It means to confuse or to make something overly complicated. And that's what Paul meant here. He uses the Greek word apareo, which normally meant like doubt, but in context really indicates, I'm at a loss. I've tried to make something so clear to you, but you folks don't seem to get it. Paul's perplexed that these folks who could walk with the Spirit, they could walk in freedom, they could claim the inheritance like sons, they'd choose to set that aside. Not lose it, you can't lose it, but they'd choose to set it aside and live their life on this earth like they didn't have it. That's just perplexing. I've heard stories, maybe you've seen these, about people who live really meager lives, really simple lives on this earth. And then they die, and like their relatives or somebody will come in to clean out their house, and they'll find thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in cash just stashed in the house. That's perplexing. Why would those people choose to live like they don't have any money? We don't know the answers. It's just confusing. There are things like that that perplex us. Here's one. I don't get the game Angry Birds. It's not just that I don't get it. I mean, I've only played it a couple times. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at games like that. But here's what I don't get. What's the one truly defining characteristic of birds? They have wings, right? Oh, no, not in angry birds they don't. Is that why they're so angry? I'd be angry if I was a flightless bird. But they seem to be upset about the fact that these pigs took their eggs. So they have to retaliate somehow. So these flightless wonders build these elaborate catapults How do they do that without wings? And then they fling themselves at these equally elaborate structures that these clearly engineer and contractor pigs have made. The whole thing just perplexes me. I'm at a loss. I don't get it. There's other things like that that are perplexing. I don't see how somebody can live a lifestyle that's openly defiant of biblical teaching and then demand that other people be accepting and more inclusive of that lifestyle. But then that person who demands acceptance, they're not accepting. And they don't want to be inclusive, and they don't want to include the people who follow biblical teaching. It just confuses me. There's lots of stuff like that. I don't really get cheesecake. Independently, I like cheese and I love cake, 
But the idea of putting cheese in cake, that's just a little weird. And then you, you get cheesecake, which I like a lot, but it doesn't taste like cheese or cake. I'm doubtful. I don't think we'll be able to figure out all these things today. So let's just jump in to why Paul is so perplexed by the churches in Galatia. So join me there in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 8 to 11 to start. Paul writes this, However, at that time, what time, Paul? When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. He says, but now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Our mission statement here at Cape Bible Chapel is we want to know God, then we want to make Him known. That's what we want to do for His glory as a church, is truly know Him. Not just know about Him, but truly know Him, and then be so motivated by that that we would go out and make Him known at work and at school and at the gym and in the neighborhood, wherever we hang out. That's what we want to do. Here Paul talks about the knowing God part. That has to come first before we can make Him known. But did you catch the subtle little theology lesson that Paul throws in there for the Galatians? They'd been hearing this false teaching that said somehow you could work your way to God. And Paul says, no, you didn't find God on your own. You didn't choose to have God as your father. He found you. Paul said God knows you. He adopted you. So you didn't choose him over an assortment of other gods and then try to do enough to earn him wanting to have a relationship with you. The initiative of grace, we've said, is all on God. He finds us. So Paul says, before God chose you Galatians, you were slaves to things that aren't God. He says, but now your name tag has changed. Now you have a relationship with the God of the universe. You have the pardon me, eternal inheritance that comes with it. He says, why on earth would you go and act like you were enslaved to something? Choose to ignore the inheritance. He mentions there, before they accepted grace, they followed other gods, not the one true God. Some of this is talking about ritual and idols and things like that, but some of it, I think, is really talking about false gods. Look real quickly at Acts chapter 14, verses 11 to 13. We'll have this on the screen. But in context, this account happens when Paul is out planting these churches in Galatia on his first missionary journey. And he, God uses Paul to heal a lame man. And so the text says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, he healed this guy. They raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, they were clearly worshiping, whose temple was just outside the city, he brought oxen and garland to the gates and they wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. This happens on Paul's first missionary journeys in the city of Lystra, and these folks worshipped other gods. And now Paul's saying to the Galatians, now you know God, and he knows you, so don't return to those things that enslaved you before, those things that aren't God. And so Paul is broadly talking about all types of things here, idols and traditions and rituals and false gods, all of them as elemental forces. And his point is, it doesn't matter what we would be enslaved to. Because God sent Jesus so we could be free. So we wouldn't be under bondage. It's apparent these folks were under bondage to false gods like Zeus and Hermes. 
you want to understand the context of Paul's day, like if you were a farmer and you wanted a good crop, you'd pray to the rain god. You'd try to appease that god. You wanted to fall in love, you'd make sacrifices to Aphrodite. If you wanted to get pregnant, you'd try to appeal to a fertility god. There were all these different gods over all these different areas. Paul's saying here, Zeus and Hermes, they're not God. You think they're like gods. You're treating them like elemental things, and you want to be in bondage to them. And the thing that Paul understood was any elemental thing ultimately can't deliver on what it promises. Back in the day, if you pray to a rain god and it rains, the rain god didn't do that. He just got lucky. Rain gods don't make it rain. They can't do that because they're not sovereign. They're not all-powerful like God. But these folks experienced things, and they might have argued with Paul. Well, you know, my twin sisters, Monique and Unique, they wanted to get married, so they sacrificed something to Aphrodite, and they found husbands. Was the sacrifice the reason they got married? What if Monique and Unique are really good cooks? What if Monique and Unique are really good-looking? If they're identical twins, and one of them is good-looking, then the other, well, there might be some other reason why they got married. There's, there's probably some other explanation. Here's the reality. Any power that we observe in a false god only has the power that God allows it to have because he's in control. Things happen in the world all around us. It's because the one true sovereign God is in control of everything. So false gods, hear me on this, even Satan, our true enemy, he only has power that God allows them to have. Do we really get that? That is so biblical. I mentioned this last week. I think part of Paul's elemental forces idea is this notion that Satan is an elemental force that's trying to draw us away from worshiping God. Can he do that? Does Satan have that ability? Well, here's the deal. He only has as much power as God lets him have. Keep your finger there in Galatians and turn with me real quick to the Old Testament book of Job. We're going to have this on the screen. But this is so cool. I want you to see it. And I want you to underline it in your Bible. So flip over to Job chapter 1. If you're familiar with the story of Job, just it's an incredible read. And early in the book, Satan takes some big swings at Job. And we need to be careful to really study and observe what God's doing. Because otherwise, we can get frustrated. And we get really upset with God and ask, God, why would you do such a thing? But see, in Job's life, God is in control And he has a plan all along. We live in this fallen world and we see movies and TV shows and things like that. And they always present this idea of good versus evil. Sometimes good wins and sometimes evil wins. And I think we want to pick that notion up and wrongly carry it into God's Word and into the way the world works and thinks, well, sometimes the good guys win and sometimes the bad guys win. If you don't think I want to make a Cardinal's Cub joke right there, you're not paying attention, but I'm going to rise above that right now. Listen, here's how it works. God wins, period. There's evil in this world. There's absolutely no denying it. But in our lives, when it looks like evil wins, then we're either in a spot where we're experiencing consequences for disobedience or we're in a spot where we can't grasp what God is up to because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But the bottom line is God is always in control. So take a look with me at Job chapter 1. I think sometimes because we know the overview of Job, we miss what happens here at the beginning, and it's really crucial. 
God allows Satan to take a hard run at Job. But Satan has to have God's permission to do it. Because God is up to something big in Job's life. And Satan, as an elemental force, he comes along, he thinks he can get Job to walk away from God. Look at Job chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now that could just mean they were going to be present before the Lord, but I think in context it means so much more than that. Picture this, God is sitting up on his throne and Satan comes to present himself before the Lord. I get that idea of like a military inspection. You know, in the military you present your weapon or you present your barracks. And what you're doing is you're presenting them for inspection under authority. So in this opening scene in Job, what you have is Satan, he's under God's authority. And God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? Why would he do that? Because he wants to draw Job even closer. He desires the very best for Job. Job's already a blameless and upright guy. God wants to know him more. And the way he's going to do this, what he's going to go about, looks a little harsh. It felt harsh for Job. But in the end, it works. It affirms everything we see in the Bible about enduring trials, and building perseverance and endurance. And the one thing I want to make sure we see is that Satan is restrained by God. The only power that Satan has is what God allows him to have. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he has, everything Job has, is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. You can underline that part. Do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. God says, Go ahead, you can mess with Job's stuff, but don't touch him. See, God's an authority. So Job loses all his things, and his family is wiped out except for his wife. And when you see how she responds, you might not question Job for asking why she didn't get wiped out too, but Job continues to worship God. And Satan comes back to present himself before God again in chapter 2, verse 1. And just like you'd expect out of Satan, he plays this blame game. He says, well, if you'd let me mess with Job himself, then he'd denounce you. And God says, okay, give it a shot. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. See, God shows his authority again. He gives Satan a little bit of leash to work with, but God's still in control. There's still restraint because he says Satan can't kill Job. Listen, there's no battle of good versus evil in the Bible. There's not. God wins, period. <laughs> it's no contest. And the great thing is that in Job's life, you know, he was that blameless, upright guy. He worshiped God, and he ends up knowing God more and loving him more. Look at the end of the book, Job chapter 42 and verse 5. Job says this to God. He says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I was a good guy, but now, because of all my trials, now, because of all this bad advice I got from my buddies, now my eyes see you. See, God had a purpose. He had a plan all along. God wins. He's in authority. This is so crystal clear in the Bible. You read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's lots of references to demon-possessed people. And if you read those, Jesus will come up to a demon and say, get out. Does the demon ever go, nah, <laughs> thanks. I really like it here. I'm up in this demon-possessed guy like a tick. You need to get some tweezers to get me out. No. Jesus says, come out, and they go, boom, you know, and they just fall out. 
That's what they do. In Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 1, Jesus is just walking by doing his thing. He doesn't even address the demons. And the demons come out and they say, we know who you are. Are you here to destroy us? There's no intrigue on who's going to win. There's no suspense here. This is the context Paul is talking about to these Galatians. He's saying, you're on the winning team. You're sons of God. You don't have to be enslaved to anything else. Why would you want to act like that? Why would you be sons who act like slaves? And Paul does something really interesting. Really broadens the application here in verse 10. Because before he's talking about worshiping false gods and elemental forces, now he starts talking about legalism. He says we can enslave ourselves to legalism just as easily as we can a false god. He makes reference to the practices in Judaism of observing like these Jewish traditions of holiness. They had special days like the Sabbath day. They had special months, new moon rituals. They had special seasons, Passover, Pentecost. They had special years. It was a Sabbath year, the Jubilee year. So Paul's taking out the big brush and he's painting this broad stroke and he says it doesn't matter what you'd be willing to enslave yourself to. I don't care if it's demonic stuff, elemental forces, idol worship, traditions and practices. He says you're now a child of God. Please, please don't act like you're not and put yourself under bondage to any weak and worthless thing that can't offer what you truly need. I'm going to go ahead and step on some toes here in this application of this teaching. I'm going to pray and hope that the toes I'm stepping on aren't here in this room. But let's go ahead and allow that there are some people who go to church and they go for the wrong reason. Scripture explains some purposes for the church to come together in Hebrews chapter 10. And none of those reasons are so we can feel better about ourselves. None of those reasons are so we can earn salvation or be in better standing with God. That's not why we assemble together. And so here's the deal. If you know someone or you are someone who comes to church, and it's not because you're just blown away by the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ, if it's not to come and worship with like-minded believers, if it's not to find a place to serve and give and build the body and bring glory to God, then you might just be enslaved and not really know it. You might be enslaved to what is really an empty tradition. I mean, if you come to church on Sunday because that's what you do on Sunday, then what are we really doing? We come to try and look good, look like we have it all together. We sing the songs. Folks ask us how we're doing. We say, oh, I'm fine. But then you look at your life, and there's no evidence of joy. There's no evidence of fruit. There's no evidence of abundance in our lives during the week. Then what are we doing showing up on Sunday and thinking that's somehow going to make us right with God? That's what we're doing. Then we're enslaved to the practice of going to church instead of living like children of God and being the church. And if we've truly professed faith in Christ, if we're transformed, if we're sons and daughters, then it's perplexing why we would do that. So why are we here? Is it to worship and grow and be encouraged and serve? If it is, then we're children of God. But if we truly walk with the Lord, and here's the deal, I don't know that. You know that, and God knows that. But if we're genuine Christ followers... And we show up at church thinking somehow it's going to make our lives better, we're going to earn favor with God, then we're doing it wrong. If we show up here on the weekend, but we don't engage, we don't serve, 
We don't give. Do we understand that's what worship is about? Worship isn't about what we get. It's about what we give. We're not here to give of ourselves, die to ourselves. And Paul's saying, we're sons that act like slaves. And if that's the case, hear me, it's not that we've lost our salvation. We can't. But what we have done is broken fellowship with the Lord. We don't have any of the joy that walking with Christ provides. That's the thing that perplexes Paul here about the Galatians. He says, if you don't live in the freedom of walking in the Spirit, if you don't live like you're going to get the inheritance, then you're acting like you hid it all around the house and you forgot you have it. If that's the case, then Paul wonders if he's labored in vain. Not because these Galatians won't end up in heaven, but it's the fact that he loves these folks and he feels like they're going to miss out on the incredible lives that God desires for us here on earth. See, eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts when we profess faith in Christ. And if we can live like sons, but instead choose to live like slaves, that's perplexing. That's Paul's first appeal. And he takes a different approach, verses 12 to 16. He leaves that appeal to not be enslaved to anything but Christ, and he asks his readers to remember the relationship that he formed with them. And here he writes this, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. He says, for I have also become as you are. He says, you've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? It says, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Love the way that starts out. Because when Paul starts talking about his relationship with these people, do you notice the way he writes changes? Because before, other than offering them some grace and peace in the very first couple verses, he's just been hammering the Galatians. <laughs> you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Why, why are you blind to the things of God? Now, after this verbal smackdown, he calls them brothers. It shows he believes they're genuine Christ followers who are not living in the freedom of Christ. They're not enjoying the relationship that God so desperately wants to have with them. And so he begs them, hey, remember the relationship that I modeled to you. Now just practically think about this. Who do we beg? We don't beg a lot, do we? I mean, in unusual circumstances, like if we're homeless or something, we might beg from strangers on the street. But typically, if we're going to beg, we do it and we appeal to relationships. We beg people that we know and care for, that we have deep concern for. If you love somebody who has a drinking problem, you plead with them to stop drinking. Why? Because you love them. And you show concern and care for them. You're trying to appeal to that. That's the approach Paul's taken in these verses. Paul's just unbelievably burdened for these people. He's visited them. He planted these churches. He cares for them. Think about your life. You don't want the people you love to struggle at all, do you? So if you see people you love struggle and it's because of bad choices that they're making, what do you do? You go beg with them to not do those things because you care. Paul sees these Galatians and they're teetering on the edge. They're toying with this idea of not living their lives on earth in the freedom that God has allowed them to have. 
that he sent his son for. So what does Paul beg him to do? He says, become as I am. Now Paul says stuff like this. He's not trying to brag. In 1 Corinthians 11 and chapter 1, he instructs there the Corinthians, be imitators of me. Why? Because Paul's so cool? No. Just as I also am of Christ. This is what he's saying. Fix your eyes on Jesus the way I do. Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. He's trying to encourage them to walk in the freedom that he does. I hope we really grasp this idea. Paul is the most free guy in the New Testament who's not named Jesus Christ. Literally, external things don't phase him at all. Now, his heart breaks for people, but physically, he could have rocks hurled at him, be snake bit, shipwrecked, beaten, living in plenty, living in need. It doesn't matter to him. Folks going around threatening to kill Paul, he'd say, so what? To die is gain. I'll get to go see Jesus. Paul would just get worked over. He'd get beaten with the rods or or beaten with the lashes and stoned. And he'd say, I don't count the present sufferings of this world as being worthy compared to future glory with God. You put Paul in prison, what does he do? He sings some hymns, he converts all the guards. This is a guy that you can't touch. Just untouchable. One of the goofy TV shows I like is the series 24. You see that one? Where Jack Bauer saves the world's bacon over and over again. I like that show. I remember in one season, this group of folks kidnap Jack Bauer. And they torture him for like a year, but he won't break. They don't get any information from him. They end up swapping out his life for something else that they need. But later that season, the situation arises where these bad guys are going to take somebody hostage. And it's somebody Jack Bauer cares for. And so he begs them, no, take me instead. And they say this, they say, what good is it to have a man that won't break? We can't get to you. I love that picture, because that's Paul. You can't break him. So how do you get to him? The same way you get to Jack Bauer. Threaten harm to somebody that he cares about, and then it's on. That's the heart that Paul has. I don't care what happens to me. I can live on the floor of the dungeon with Jesus. I'm going to be fine. But these people... That's what concerns him. He sees these Galatians being threatened by the Judaizers, and now they're thinking about returning to slavery and bondage instead of living in freedom, and Paul can't bear it. And so he reminds him, he says, I'm your boy. We hung out, and I was a mess when I came to you, but you didn't hold that against me. You didn't run away from me or despise me. As a matter of fact, you received me and the true gospel message that I was preaching like I was an angel of God. Even better, like I was Jesus. Now, we could speculate a whole bunch on why these folks might have loathed Paul, what his bodily illness might have been. Verse 15 indicates that the Galatians appreciated Paul so much they would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to Paul. Take a look real quickly at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, up here on the screen. God's used Paul mightily throughout his life, and in this passage, Paul's been receiving visions and revelations from the Lord. And so he shares this. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he says, for this reason, because God has a purpose always, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment Paul, to keep him from exalting himself. Paul gets this daily reminder in his flesh to boast only in the Lord, but we don't know what it was. We know that it was so bothersome that he begged God three times to take it away. And God said, no, I like you with that thorn. 
because I want the very, very best for you. And having that thorn was part of God's best. God's in control. We don't always get that. But a lot of times we work off the clues in the Bible, like this one in our text, says the Galatians would have plucked out their eyes and given them to Paul. And we conclude that Paul's thorn must have been some kind of weird eye disease. Let me just say that could be the case. But I don't think we can know for sure. Here's what the text says. Paul showed up and he had a bodily illness. And the Greek word there indicates it's an infirmity of some kind. But it literally could just mean a weakness. Now here's what we do know for a fact from Acts chapter 14 and verse 19 that when Paul was on this first missionary journey planting these churches, he was almost stoned to death. He was left for dead. And I would think that being pelted with rocks to the point of almost dying would make you pretty weak. But I'm just guessing. I don't want to find out. Maybe Paul is talking about being stuck with these people when he was broken and bruised and bloody and a puffy, just swollen mess. He's recovering from being stoned half to death. I mean, he would have been hard to look at. What we do know for sure is that these people received Paul and the gospel message gladly, it says, when he was a hot mess. It did him no wrong. And so now Paul appeals to that, and he asks, what happened between us? He's appealing to relationship. And he asks a legitimate question. It's a huge application question for all of us in verse 16. He says, if I become your enemy by telling you the truth, When we want the best for somebody and it involves showing them a blind spot or calling them out on a sin issue, do we become their enemy for doing that? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. It's a big theme in being a pastor, sadly. But I would bet it's happened in your life. Whether you went to somebody to share a hard truth or somebody came to you, it doesn't really matter which way, but the truth receiver, they didn't like the truth. You can't handle the truth. And so they throw you under the bus. Why do we do that? A lot of how we receive a message like that, even a true message, comes from what we believe the motivation behind the message is. If we think somebody has an ulterior motive, they're trying to gain an advantage, well, then we won't blindly accept what they say, right? You ever go shopping and ask a sales clerk, hey, does this look good on me? If you ask them, do you believe them? Because they're they're trying to sell you something. Of course they're going to tell you it looks good on you. You don't know about their motivation. In these next verses, Paul's going to shed some light on how we can spot a difference in what motivates people. Now he's going to be talking in this context of the false gospel that the Judaizers were sharing and what their motivation behind that was compared to the true gospel that he was sharing and what his motivation was, which he's shown over and over again, it's that he cares for these people. He wants the best for them. Then as we take it out and apply it, we're going to be talking about the difference between practical freedom in Christ or being enslaved to religion and religious practices. Paul says ultimately are just elemental things. Look at verses 17 to 19 with me. Paul says they, this is the Judaizers, they eagerly seek you, but not commendably. They wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. He says, but it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, not only when I'm present with you, he calls them my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. What do we say Paul's motivation is? He cares for these people. He wants God's best for them. He loves them so much, he's willing to offend them by telling them the truth. He's been crystal clear about that. But in these verses, he's saying, 
Now, here's the deal. The Judaizers, they don't love you enough to tell you the truth. They're just tickling your ears. They came in with this intention of flattering the Galatians. And Paul uses a Greek word there in verse 17 that's translated as shut you out. It really means alienate. That's what you do when you shut someone out, right? The Judaizers want to shut out Paul and the gospel because they want to shut in the Galatian people. And Paul uses the Greek verb for be zealous two times there. He says the Judaizers are zealous to win the Galatians over. Why? So that the Galatians will be zealous for the Judaizers. And let's pause and ask the obvious question there. When has God ever asked anybody to be zealous for someone other than himself? You won't do that. Because that becomes idol worship. That becomes being enslaved to an elemental force. Now Paul recognizes here, it's nice to have people fight over you. We like that. That makes us feel good. But it's only valuable if both fighting parties would have good intentions. And here only Paul did. And he shows some real tenderness here. He calls the Galatians children. He uses this metaphor of a mother having labor pains. And did you catch it? He says, I am again having labor pains. Because he's already had them once. He had them first when he was walking with these people and praying for their salvation. And now, because he cares so much for them, and he wants them to be free from these false teachers, he indicates he wants them to grow spiritually. This is so huge. He wants them to mature. Well, that's something only true Christ followers can do. This is a real sanctification issue at heart. He says he longs for them to be transformed where they take on the life and the image of Jesus Christ. This shouldn't surprise us. Paul's already shared his heart on this with the Galatian people. Back in chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says, personally, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And he's saying, I'm in anguish over you Galatians because I want you to live like I live, free in Christ. I don't want to stand up here in bad-mouth churches, but where we see this in application is in local churches that teach a false gospel. And they try to attract a big following for themselves. And you'll look on the surface, sometimes they look wildly successful. People will go to these churches. Why? Because they want to have their ears tickled. Paul addresses this later in his life. He's pouring into his disciple Timothy. Timothy's going to pastor. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verses 3 to 4, where Paul's training Timothy, he warns him about this about people who are going to be slaves to false religion. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but, wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They'll turn away their ears from the truth. They'll turn aside to myths. You ever see this happen? Here's the truth. Here's the reality of it. Some of you sitting out here today, I've had some tough moments with you. I've had anguish with you. There, there's times when we're personally, we don't see eye to eye. One of the guys I disciple asked me just this week what some of my biggest disappointments in ministry are. And so I shared with him times where I have had to, literally had to because of my love for God's Word, because of my belief that it instructs me how I'm supposed to live my life and love people. I've had to share hard things with people. And then some of those people have left the church. Some of those people have said they don't want to be my friend anymore. And here's what I could have done to avoid that. I could have lied. 
I could have tickled their ears a little bit and told them, no, I'm sure that thing you're doing, that's really not that big a deal. I'm sure it's not important that you learn to understand what godly submission looks like. I'm sure it's really not that big a deal if you don't love your neighbors yourself. You can probably pass on that one. I think I should have done that. I know there are fast-growing churches all around this world that have huge attendance where somebody stands up in front of them and says, if you just believe God will rain $100 bills down on your head and you'll have no trials in your life. And people walk out of those churches happy for a very short period of time because they like to have their ears tickled. But here's what's going to happen. Those people are going to be rocked because they believed in a lie. Those teachers are going to be held accountable by God for their dishonesty. Let me not tickle your ears. There are going to be trials in this life. Hope you get that. God knows about them. That's what he uses to accomplish his plan, his purpose for our lives. He wants the very best for us. Think about the story of Job. God is in control all the time, and he wants us to know him and then make him known. But I'd be lying if I didn't say, hey, God's plan sometimes hurts. There's times, many times, we won't be able to understand what he's up to. But the promise from Scripture is that he's enough. Regardless of the circumstances we encounter, God is enough. Paul understood that. That's what made him free. We need to understand God's motivation behind why he does what he does in our lives. And we can't come to church secretly hoping, well, just because we showed up at church, now God's going to give us what we want. He's going to rain money out of the sky. He's going to spare us all the trials in our lives. The question becomes, in our lives, is God enough? Let me ask it this way. Can God restore and heal broken marriages? Of course he can. Can he lead us out of financial ruin? For sure. Can he accomplish more than we can ever think or dream or imagine? Yes, yes, and yes. He's God. He's in control. But hear me on this one. If we come to church, or if we say we know God just because we want Him to do those things in our lives, but we don't want to live our life for Him, we're not okay with experiencing trials along the way. We don't want to surrender everything and be transformed and give worship to Him. And maybe we're enslaved in a false religion. See, Paul's heart is breaking for these Galatians because of this last verse. His motivation is he wants to see Christ formed in these people that he loves. He doesn't want them simply to observe traditions. He wants them to live transformed. So here's how he winds up this thought in verse 20. I hope you can feel his heart on this. He says, but I could wish to be present with you now. And to change my tone, he says, for I'm perplexed about you. He's scratching his head. He's just at a loss. He's been really harsh with these people. He doesn't want to be. God has used Paul to help these people put their faith in Christ. Now they're walking around acting like they want to be enslaved again. That doesn't make any sense. In this area, I really get Paul. If I'm honest, I'm sometimes perplexed by the body of Christ. And I certainly include myself in the body. How can I stand up here and teach things like the truth of this passage and still in my life act like I'm enslaved, I'm in bondage to certain things? Why would I do that? 
perplexing. How can we be a local church that desires to equip people to serve, and yet we see people who show up here every Sunday, and they don't appear to be serving anywhere? How can we have a mission statement that says we want to know God and make Him known, and yet a lot of us act like we just really want to know God, and we want somebody else to take care of the making Him known part? Hear me on this. I don't know all the circumstances of your life. I'm not supposed to. I don't know how we're living, but here's the deal. God does, and he has a plan for us, and he wants the very best for our lives. So let me ask you this question. Do you know where that will occur? Because Paul does. It's why he's made these appeals to the church in Galatia. We're going to be free to live for Christ when we surrender to him. And when we worship Him, and when we serve and give to Him, that's where we're going to see it, not just in coming to church on Sunday, but in having Christ formed in us. That's the goal. If you're here and you're a Christ follower, you're a child of God, why would we return to bondage and slavery? That would be perplexing. We close our time together by praying. We're going to have communion. Get this incredible opportunity to come and partake in the Lord's Supper. This is designed for people who are sons, not slaves. It's designed for us to have time to examine our hearts, confess our sins, be right with God. If you're new here at the chapel or you're a visitor, we've got the communion elements on the table all around the room. Gary's going to come and, and we'll have some music and you'll have some time to reflect and we'll worship together and have a few more announcements. But before I pray, I would just encourage you, in this time as we're confessing, Can we ask ourselves that question? Am I a son that lives in freedom or am I a son that lives like a slave? And if that's the deal, can we confess that and ask God to transform us because he's the only one who can? Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Paul's letter to the church in Galatia and thank you for Paul's heart that comes from you. He wants the very best for these people. God, I pray for my heart. I pray for the elders and the staff of this church. I pray as we lead that we'd be so willing to die to ourselves. God, that I'd give up friendships that that aren't based on the things in your word if I had to because I, I so boldly shared the truth in love with people. God, help us to not be a church that tickles ears. Help us to to call people to grow as you call us to grow and mature and be transformed from the inside out. God, help us to be sons that live like children of God, not like slaves. God, we love you so much. Just ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.